The technology of democracy is always evolving. The technology of authoritarianism is always evolving. And I think we're really at a point where the innovations of authoritarian technology may be, in fact, outpacing those on the democratic side. I'm David Smith, and welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we're bringing an international focus to the podcast with UChicago Law professors Tom Ginsberg. Hi, David. And Aziz Hawk. Hi, David. And Professors Ginsburg and Hawk have just written a great book entitled How to Save a Constitutional Democracy about the trend of democratic backsliding around the world. So thank you both for joining me to chat about it. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. All right. So let's jump right in. So the book opens with a provocative question, and that is, how would you know your democracy is in peril? So I guess my question is, are democracies around the world in peril? You know, what inspired you to write this book now? Well, there there are a number of different uh, quantitative indices of democratic quality that are produced by entities like Freedom House, the Economist Intelligence Unit, and the Bertelsmann uh, Foundation. All of these quantitative measures of democracy, which provide numerical scores for the quality of democracy of different countries around the world, suggest that since 2010, the quality of global democracy has been on the decline. What seems to be happening is not a collapse, but a uh, certainly a failure of the forward momentum that democracy seemed to be experiencing in the 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, but also a decline, slow, subtle, but important, in the quality of democracies that looked as if they had become established by the early 2000s. I think now it might be good to turn to how you guys in your book define democracy. So you use a conception that you call liberal constitutional democracy. So maybe it would be useful to hear just how you kind of define that, this kind of floor of democracy. Right. Uh, so definitions of democracy are as numerous as the stars almost. There's by one account, uh, 500 different words which have been put in front of democracy, deliberative democracy, delegative democracy, representative democracy, you could go on forever. In our view, it was important to come up with a definition that was relatively thin, that covered a lot of cases, but that still was sort of uh, realistic and full and gave account to what we think are the essential features. So we focus on three. First, you have to have uh, democratic elections which are repeated and in which losers concede defeat. Second, and and this is really critical, as lawyers, we recognize that elections alone are not enough. You can't have elections unless there's a certain legal infrastructure there. Um, and most basically, that means rights to freedom of speech, freedom of association, rights to run for office, the various core rights that are really connected to democratic um, operation. And finally, the third element is something we call the bureaucratic rule of law. Um, and the idea here is that, you know, bureaucracy, although it often gets a bad name, is actually really important for democracy. At a minimum, to have an election, you need people who are going to count the votes fairly uh, and are going to operate according to preset rules and not just uh, change things in accordance with whatever the, uh, their, their side wants. Enough structure of the rule of law so that things can continue to operate 
without regard to who actually is the leader at the time. That I think is really important because if you have a system in which – and many countries do have this – where a uh, incoming leader comes in, can fire all the prosecutors, uh, put in his own people and tell them where to, where to look for crimes, um, that's not a system that's going to be a democracy because it's not one where anyone's ever going to give up power. So somehow the rule of law and the bureaucracy lower the stakes of democratic turnover and thus make it possible. Okay, so just to take one example from the book, which I think might be interesting. So take a the state of Wisconsin, for instance, which has restrictive voter ID, partisan gerrymandering, attempts to restrict the incoming governor's power. In a case like that, would you say that satisfies your floor definition of democracy? I think that there are more close cases in Western democracies than one would at first like to think. Uh, Wisconsin uh, is is not a nation state, right? It's a, a, an element of a nation state. And it's an element of a nation state that actually has a long history of what's called subnational authoritarianism. For most of the 20th century, most states in the American South were not electorally competitive. The Democratic Party had a lock on political power that was maintained both by violence, by lynching, and by the use of discriminatory laws that excluded, in particular, African Americans, but also a lot of poor whites from the franchise. So we shouldn't be surprised to see instances of, of democratic failure or of policies or, or, or subnational units that are at the margin within the United States. And Wisconsin probably falls into that, at least the, the category of marginal cases. One way to think about our definition of democracy is um, with the following hypothetical question. Is, it, is there, before the fact of an election, before the fact of choice, uncertainty about what the outcome of that choice is going to be? At least with respect to the state legislature in Wisconsin, it's not clear that there is that kind of uncertainty. It's not clear that that uncertainty exists in large measure because of partisan gerrymandering that our colleague Nicholas Stephanopoulos has, uh, has been at the forefront of litigating over. Notice that that's not the same with respect to either the gubernatorial election, which was won by Tony Evers in 2018, or the state Supreme Court seats, right? Those, those are, those turn out because they're statewide seats, they turn out to still be competitive. So Wisconsin is an interesting and mixed example where the basic test of our definition of democracy doesn't plainly run through, at least for the legislature, although it might do for other offices. It's fascinating. Now maybe to turn towards what we're seeing in terms of decline of democracy. So in your book, you identify these two modes, one fast, authoritarian collapse, and slower democratic erosion. So maybe if you could talk about kind of the difference in those two. I think if you asked somebody in the time that we were growing up and coming of age how a democracy ends, the leading example that would come to mind would be the end of uh, Weimar democracy in Germany in 1933 and the famous fire that swept through the Reichstag building and the emergency decrees and enabling act that followed that ended uh, effectively parliamentary rule in, in Germany until after the Second World War. 
up through the 1970s, it was in fact the case, if you looked around the globe, that democracies would end in sharp, sudden shocks. They would end largely through military coups or through the use of emergency powers uh, of the kind that we saw, see in Weimar Germany. Since the 1970s, however, and increasingly in the last uh, decade and a half, there has been a shift in the technology of democratic decline. Rather than seeing fast collapses, what we increasingly observe is processes of slow erosion from within. The easiest way to focus upon this or, or to get a grip on this is to think about the last 10 to 15 years, uh, and in particular developments in Latin America and Eastern Europe, the former communist bloc, where following the collapse of an established party system, a leader or party comes to power which has a very thin or non-existent commitment to democracy as a going concern. We know this because these leaders take measures that are designed and have the effect of undermining the possibility of institutionalized democracy, uncertainty before an actual election occurs in predictable ways. Right? And, and by and large, they're successful. Uh, and, and this slow form of democratic decline appears now to be the modal way, the most common way that democracies decline in quality around the world. So another way of saying this would be elections, poll counting, there's all sorts of things that are technologies of democracy. And the technology of democracy we know changes over time, right? Hanging paper ballots are replaced over time by voting machines, etc. So too do the technologies of anti-democracy. Anti-democracy had a particular technological and institutional form up through about the 1970s. And then people worked out, people innovated new ways of eliminating democracy or, or corroding the restraints it places upon the exercise of political power. It turns out these new techniques, which are slow rather than fast, have the benefit of making it very hard for outsiders to know exactly when a democracy has failed. Right? It's really hard to say, look, here's the cut point at which, say, Venezuela or Poland or Hungary tipped over the edge. And, and because of that elimination of sharp focusing uh, moments, the slow modality of democratic failure might be easier for the anti-democrat to pursue than the fast mode. And that might be one important reason why we've seen the slow uh, forms of democratic decay outpace and in many but not all instances supersede the fast mode of democratic collapse in the form of a coup or an emergency power declaration. I think the interesting paradoxical thing is a lot of these anti-democratic leaders come to power through democratic means. And I guess my question is, once they've seized power and kind of entrenched themselves, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, for instance, why do they continue to pretend? Why hold elections? Is that for the benefit of the outside world? Or does that give them some advantages within their country? Why, why do you think they continue to hold on to the trappings of democracy? Well, there's a lot of literature on this. In the case of someone in Europe, Viktor Orban, you know, democracy is one of the fundamental principles of the European Union. So it allows him to continue to put on the facade of being a democracy and getting 
resources from the European Union and such. It might also be that his population wouldn't tolerate a pure suspension of elections. Um, so having elections, even rigged ones, gives you some legitimacy both for the outside world and for the local population. There's also a very interesting literature on the function of elections and democratic, you know, looking institutions for authoritarian leaders. And one of the things we now know is that regimes that have elections tend to last longer than those that don't. And the theory is that what the elections are doing, even if the opposition can never win, they are identifying issues which the public cares about. And that allows the leader to then respond to those issues. So they can learn about potential uh, weak spots in their regime, try to fix those. They can learn about charismatic people who, you know, might be a challenge and either try to co-opt them or to, you know, destroy them. Um, so having, having some elections actually seems to be good for authoritarians these days. Just as uh, Professor Huck said, the technology of democracy is always evolving. The technology of authoritarianism is always evolving. And I think we're really at a point where the innovations of authoritarian technology may be, in fact, outpacing those on the democratic side. So I guess one thing that might be good to talk about as well in this context is what are the root causes that are allowing these anti-democratic movements to get these wins in democratic elections? So one thing you identify in the book is kind of the the political style of the charismatic populist and how many of these illiberal leaders are these charismatic populists. So I was wondering if you could just speak to that kind of style of politics and how that's kind of gaining traction in some of these countries. Yeah, populism is um, on a lot of people's lips these days. It's uh, I was reading that the share of European parliamentary election seats all over in, in all the countries of Europe won by populist parties is now something over 30%. It's up fivefold since 2000. So there's a wave of populism. You know, populism um, sometimes gets a bad name, but of course has a good function. It usually arises when the elites have not been responding to what the, the people, broadly speaking, want. What we think is a bit of a danger is what we call charismatic populism. And that's a populism in which a single leader claims the unique ability to channel the voice of the people and such that any intermediate institution between the leader and the people is suspect. So you often see populists go after the media and civil society and institutions and government structures precisely because uh, the populist claims. They interfere with his, and it's usually a he, uh, his ability to intuit what the people want. Um, so I think that's a dangerous claim. And in particular, it is quite tied to the research structure of our book in that one of the modalities by which we see democratic erosion take place is constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendment is really attractive for these charismatic populists because the constitutional amendment process often will involve a referendum or going to the well of the people, what the, what the French call the poivre constituent, the constituent power of the people. And the leader, by doing that, is able to kind of renew his uh, authority in some sense. So we see the constitutional amendment is very popular with these populist leaders. That's kind of an interesting um, side point. So I guess that's kind of the leader side of the equation. So how about on the, the people side of the equation? I guess my question is, what does the data tell us about the popular views of democracy? And do you think that also ties into this account? The, the evidence on this score is, is – uh, ambiguous at best. There's the the leading studies draw upon something called the World Values Survey, 
to estimate the degree of support for democracies or for autocratic or military takeovers from uh, against democracy. The, there are two positions in the empirical literature. One is that over time we're seeing de- decreases in support for democracy and that those decreases are particularly concentrated in the developed world and they're particularly concentrated within the developed world among younger rather than older populations. Uh, there is a countervailing view that support for democracies tends to have a life cycle function. Right? It tends to be that people become more supportive of democracies as they grow older, and that World Values Survey uh, data uh, bear out this life cycle uh, thesis. So the perceived dip that we're seeing now may just be a function of a larger number of people being young at present than was the case previously. Uh, so that, that that there's an open debate with respect to that. More granularly, um, if one looks at many of the contexts in which charismatic populists have come to power, one also sees the collapse of an established party system, right? And the collapse of an established party system. This happens all across Latin America. It's happened in uh, it happened in uh, Eastern Europe. You see versions of this happening in Italy, in France, and now actually in the UK. The collapse of the party system seems to be a function of a a democratic policy being under often great economic stress right this is this in part seems to be what the catalytic role that the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009 plays right a democracy comes under great economic macroeconomic stress it isn't really able to respond in ways that buffer the effect of that shock not just for uh, relatively politically powerful, influential, and wealthy groups in society, but more generally, the failure to buffer the the economic shock uh, leads to general distrust of elites and creates an opening for a leader who has this charismatic populist style to either take over an existing party or come in with their own party to upend the previous party system that, that that had been in play. The other element that that picture leaves out is that the role that cultural anxieties play in motivating distrust of elites. And this is something that, in particular, the political scientists Pippa Norris and Ronald Engelbert have emphasized. They, they look at what predicts vote shares for populist parties around the world, and Focusing on Europe, they, they they make the argument that what really is going on is cultural discomfort, the sense of changing cultural mores, and that economic concerns are really secondary, right? So there's a number of different stories that you can tell. To my mind, the cultural and the economic stories are, are almost certainly intertwined. And what is perceived as being culturally disruptive will in part turn on how economically secure you feel and how economically secure your children's future seems to you. I think those are those are both really key things. But notice that perception is playing a large role as well as underlying economic or cultural fundamentals. Yeah, I tend to be more of the cultural school, uh, in part because we do see the phenomenon even in countries that aren't particularly unequal and are, um, you know haven't done badly economically. On the other hand, I do think there is something to the inequality story. Uh, first of all, as Professor Huxer suggested, it makes the populations sort of rife 
for the cultural factors to be amplified. But it's also, I think, critical because at the high end, of course, the 1% increasingly can buy and control politics and institutions to the point where the rest of us have no voice in that process. So the consolidation of media power globally, I think, is really problematic. And you can say that's a form of inequality. In addition, the 99% increasingly then check out, feel like they have no control of their lives. So I think I am coming to the position that the two things are intertwined. Um, and the inequality matters, but in that very specific way. One thing that brings to mind for me if we're thinking about these cultural shocks and undermining elite institutions and popular perceptions tied in with economic factors, I'm wondering about the role of social media in either exacerbating or undermining some of these trends. We think that the the role of social media in uh, propagating fake news and enabling populism is exaggerated. The, there is a long, long history of political propaganda, the diffusion of, uh, of misleading, outright slanderous stories about politicians um, uh, that goes back to the beginning of the American Republic at the very latest. Um, and it's not clear that, that social media is, is, is really driving this. Um, in the United States, two points are worth are worth making. So first, there's a terrific study by Robert Farris, Yochai Benkler at Harvard that uh, demonstrates that, uh, that maps out the extent of Russian troll farm clickbait being diffused via either Twitter or Facebook and shows that um, just that the vol, even the volumes that were being uh, produced in the 2016 election um, were wildly insufficient to change the vote share in states like uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Right. So the the kind of the stone on election story where where the vehicle for the theft is social media just does not bear out. In fact, um, the second observation to make is that you know if you if you are off the view that the problem with social media was the diffusion of pro-Trump uh, stories in 2016, then you have to grapple with the fact that the, the vote share that Trump gets is importantly a vote share among older voters. And older voters are not the demographic slice that tends to be most reliant upon social media for their news, right? So there's 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 there's, there's a just a factual tension between the observed demographic realities of the election and the trope that that one hears in the popular media that it's all the fault of social media and the Russian troll farms, etc. Well, that's actually a great segue into the United States because I think that's a big question mark here. One of the most fascinating parts of the book discusses how vulnerable the United States is to democratic erosion. And basically, the question is, will our constitution save us from erosion? So what is your take on that? Well, of course, a lot of people think so. You were very proud of our constitution, uh, which has endured more than two centuries, the oldest constitution still in existence. But our argument is not only would the constitution not save us, but in many cases, it actually facilitates democratic erosion in this country. Uh, just give a couple examples. So one thing is that, and it's really important, James Madison and his colleagues were writing before the era of political parties, and they assigned the power of running elections to who? To state legislatures, which immediately became very partisan. And we're now seeing a development of the technologies of manipulation by state legislators in many states. And there's nothing we can really do about that. Although we do have some suggestions, and, and certainly a number of states have moved to nonpartisan electoral commissions, which we think are a good idea. 
Uh, but there's still going to be states for which the state legislature will draw its own lines, for which secretaries of states will count the votes in elections that they're running in, which we saw twice in the last cycle, and so on. And so that seems to me an, an example of how the Constitution facilitates democratic erosion. The other thing is that compared with um, many modern constitutions, we don't have a very thick and protected infrastructure for accountability. So if you were to take a random constitution drawn up in the last 10 years, it would have a whole network of institutions. We sometimes call these fourth branch institutions whose only job is to monitor the other branches in various ways, counter-corruption commissions, ombudsmen, human rights commissions, etc. You know, at a moment like the present one, when there's these massive debates over accountability of elected leaders and, um, you know, our only method of dealing with them is, you know, a very clumsy one, impeachment, that seems to me uh, inadequate or non-ideal. So that, those are just a couple examples and we have some others. Just to set out the basic analytic strategy of the book, what we do in the book is to canvas examples of democratic decay around the world and to identify uh, regularities in the tools of democratic decay. That is, we, we see the same instruments, we've seen the same tactics being employed from Caracas to Krakow, through Russia, India, Israel, to Japan, right? There, there's a toolkit, in other words. And, and this should not be surprising, that the idea that policy ideas diffuse across national boundaries is a, is a very old one, and we're, we're simply seeing it occur with respect to anti-democratic uh, uh, policies rather than pro-democratic or internal to democracy policies. Having identified, I think in the book, we, we, we enumerate five different kinds of anti-democratic legal or constitutional change. We then look to the United States to say, well, how many of these are, are blocked by the US Constitution? And, and there are a couple which the Constitution does well at impeding. So, for example, um, Professor Ginsburg mentioned constitutional amendment. The US Constitution in Article 5 famously makes constitutional amendment very difficult. Right? It, it imposes very high vote thresholds. That, in effect, takes constitutional amendment off the table for a prospective American anti-democrat. Similarly, the First Amendment's protection of political speech, its prohibition on the uh, use of libel to silence political enemies, turn out to be very important. Right? We do not see, as we do in Turkey, in Russia, and in other uh, jurisdictions, the use of civil libel laws to silence or bankrupt political critics of the government. And, and that's something that, that should be celebrated. There are, however, other elements of the US Constitution that are much more amenable to the anti-democrats uh, toolkit. And, and, and the, I think the, the thing to focus on here is the, is the possibility of accountability producing institutions that Professor Ginsburg rightly led off with, which are not included in the 1787 Constitution, and to some extent are cast into constitutional doubt by uh, ambitious theories of the scope of Article 2, the executive power, right? And we, we see this, for example, in respect to or instantiated by the Article 2 challenges to the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. 
those those challenges didn't pan out in time for uh, them to prevent the release of his report but there's a there's a bit of contingency to that right it's 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 quite possible to see uh, a court these days invalidating uh, those accountability mechanisms that we do have under a robust theory of article 2 so our our, our takeaway is that one, once one thinks about the way that the technology of anti-democracy has evolved, right? And it's a technology like any other. It changes over time. And, and one thinks about that changed technology, which has been refined in the last 10 years, as against a text of, the, of a basic law that was written in two centuries and change ago. It would be utterly startling if our two and a half century old basic law, in fact, had the resources to address novel technological vectors of anti-democracy. It would be like thinking that a, uh, a steam engine of the kind that James Watt invented was a sufficient tool to keep modern cities running, right? Technologies change. Our constitution has both the virtues and the vices of being a really old technology. Yeah. And given that it's so hard to amend I guess that's a kind of a double-edged sword because it resists, you know, authoritarian amendments, but also makes it hard to introduce new safeguards. So I'm wondering, are there extra constitutional things we could do in the United States to resist this toolkit of anti-democracy? Yeah, we talk about a slew of things that could be done by statute or even by a change in congressional rules. So one of our ideas is that political systems do better when they have the idea of a legitimate opposition, where the opposition is mentioned in the Constitution and given some some role. Even though they don't have power, they might have a role to play in, in, in chairing certain committees or um, ensuring accountability and such. We're at a moment right now where both parties are really demonizing the other and bipartisanship has broken down. But Congress could change that just by changing congressional rules and giving you know the opposition or the minority party chairmanships of particular committees and such. Now, the incentive structure isn't there for that to happen, but there are such things that could be done. There may be some statutory things too that we could do. That Right. Think about the, the dynamics that are unfolding over the release of the Mueller report and the way that statutory changes might be uh, useful in responding to the, shall we just call them dysfunctionalities? And I think that there is a, a, a there is a conversation at least to be had, and one would hope it would be a conversation that is bipartisan in quality, about the kind of structures that provide durable uh, means of apolitical investigation and epistemic revelation uh, with respect to behavior on the part of high level officials that either skirts criminal norms or imperils the obligation that is more moral and normative in quality that we hope officials labor under. The last thing that would be interesting to discuss is just kind of your thoughts on how hopeful you are for the future of democracy. So I guess one thing I'm thinking about is to look to Eastern and Central Europe. We have we discussed Viktor Orban in Hungary, but then we just saw Slovakia elect a pretty progressive pro-EU president. So I think there's, you know, examples that cut in both directions. So yeah, how hopeful are you? Well, we we have in in actually in a book chapter that's not in this book, a a chart of the progress of uh 
or of the number of democracies that are backsliding and the number of democracies that are improving. And, and, if, and the, those two lines, it turns out, are both on upward trajectories in the last three or four years, right? It's just that the number of backsliding democracies is greater than the number of improving democracies. But we are seeing, that is, both consolidation and deconsolidation happening in different places around the world. So this is not, I think, a moment at which uh, democracy is losing its, its hegemonic status around the world. Absolutely, it's being hollowed out in some places, but it's being deepened and defended in other places. Uh, and so I, I think this is, this is one of those uh, moments in which it's extremely hard to predict the future. It's extremely hard to say how, in the aggregate, uh, things will, will, will work out. For example, the Polish elections later this year, I think, will be a, a, a critical turning point for that country. There are some jurisdictions where it's really hard to see how things change. I, I do think Hungary is one of them. Um, on the other hand, there are jurisdictions like uh, Venezuela, where it's really hard to see how things remain the same, right? It just looks so intolerable from the perspective of the Venezuelan population, right? The, 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 the idea that this continues seems almost unimaginable. So I, I think predictions are very hard, but I, I do think that this is a moment that is ripe with possibilities. One of the things that gives me hope, of course, is the is that there's generational change. And I think we see in a lot of countries, younger people have a different set of attitudes about these things, often more pro-democratic, pro-participation, and not being willing to put up with the sort of corruption and such that many of their parents were. We also see, as Professor Huck referred to, many cases which were looked like they were declining and then things were reversed. And sometimes that's caused, it turns out, by actors who don't really have democratic legitimacy themselves, like militaries or bureaucracies or courts, who um, just call attention to the phenomenon, um, sometimes maybe pause, put a pause button on the process of erosion, allowing the democratic forces to mobilize and reassert themselves. I think we're starting to see international institutions wake up to this phenomenon. The European Union was very slow with regard to Hungary, and so slow that I think, as Professor Huck said, it's really hard to imagine that country reversing itself. But in Poland, the European Union has been quite active. And in fact, they have, to some degree, put a pause button on the process of judicial takeover. The Polish people are going to get their vote later this year in an absolutely crucial election. If it goes the way of law and justice, then um, I think we're going to see continued erosion pretty rapidly. So as Professor Huck said, it's a moment of a lot of contingency. That means a lot of trepidation, but also a lot of excitement and a lot of possibilities. I want to say one final thing, which is we're seeing around the world attempts to experiment with new forms of democratic participation. We mentioned sortition earlier, but also you can imagine some online kind of interactive experiments, really, that will allow people to have voice in policies that matter to them. We find that people, when they can engage over matters that are important to them, like to do so. They change their views. They can be convinced. And so I think the technology of democracy is going to continue to evolve too. So that gives me some hope. All right. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Uh, the book is called How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Great book. And we only scratched the surface here. So everyone should check that out. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, guys. Thanks to both of you. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiElRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Please join us again next time for Genealogy DNA Databanks and Criminal Investigations.